Um, just, I like, I really like the image of Scripture just kind of washing over us and just kind of sitting in it. So here it is again. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a town and spend a year there doing business and making money. Yet you do not even know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? What is your life? For you are a mist that vanish, that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wishes, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Anyone then who knows the right thing to do and fails to do it commits sin. Uh, what is your life? We've been talking about judgment for the last couple of, of weeks. We talked about how um, James is talking about how people who want to stand over in judgment and that you are not the judge, right? So that when part of the sin of judgment is to say, I am something I'm not, right? I am not your judge. And so I am doing something evil when I'm acting like I'm someone that I am not. I'm acting like I have power I don't have. Central to this passage is the same thing when he says, what is your life? What is your life? If the answer to that question is, I have complete control over my life. I know what I'm going to do tomorrow. I know what I'm going to do for the next year. I got it all figured out. You are acting as if you are something you are not. Because what you are is a mist. You do not even know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. That is scary to say. It hits home um, when we see people uh, pass away. It's not something we want to swallow. Um, it's something we'd rather forget about. Right, so that every uh, every little boy, my little boy included, um, in when we're playing a game, right? He, uh, <clears throat> I don't know, maybe maybe little girls probably do this too. I don't know, but I know that little boys do it. Um, instead of talking about my boy, I'm going to talk about myself because that I don't like to preach about my kids. They're not sermon props. Anyway, I am though. My life is a sermon prop. That's all it's become. No, uh, but I remember when I would play little play games. As a kid with other boys in my neighborhood, it was a great neighborhood. We would just like run around all the time. Um, and we, no matter what game we were playing, it was always destined to be destroyed. Okay, And there was this one phrase that would destroy the game. You know what that phrase was? Now I am invincible. Right? Like that is the biggest word that a little boy figures out how to learn. And like, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't uh, finish my math. Um, test in second grade, like in time, but I knew what invincible meant, right? I absolutely, and as soon as you say that, as soon as you're playing the game and you say, I'm invincible, what's the next thing your friend says that you're, that's playing with you? Me too, I'm invincible too. Okay, what are we going to do now, right? It's done, it's over, it's destroyed. Uh, I actually think that when we, when we live like a life as if we're invincible, and when we live life, you know, nobody ever, and nobody says that. Nobody ever says, oh yeah, I'm not going to die. Like Nobody does that. But we all know, we all know that either we do it or we've seen somebody else who acts in life as if they've got it all figured out. And they've got all the control, right? 
that they know the future. Not they know like they can read the future, but they, they have a direction and they know where they're going. In fact, we, we like that. We teach, like, we teach kids how to do that in school. Right? We teach them to be like that. This is extraordinarily countercultural, this idea of, of being a mist. What is your life? Right? I grew up in the Disney, the, the golden age of Disney animation, right? Like I I am, you know, for a time in my life I was Aladdin. And and for another time in my life I, I was Simba. You know, like this destined person with with this great life that will change the world. And it'll all be magical and there'll be uh, people breaking out in song at some point. Um, <laughs> but what is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. We are not invincible. But perhaps there's great health in admitting that we are what we really are. Perhaps there's something really good and healthy and joyous about admitting and looking in the mirror and saying, I am a mist. I do not have control over the future. So the ending of this passage is about, um, let me go back to it so I don't mess it up. As it is, you boast in your arrogance, right? So he's talking about you're boasting in your arrogance as if you can arrogantly say to the future, I can control you. I know where I'm going to go. I'm going to go to this place and I'm going to spend a year there and I'm going to make a bunch of money while I'm there. That is arrogance, right? I've got it figured out. I've got control over the future. No, you don't. You are acting as if you are something you are not. And you know that that's not who you are. Everyone knows they are not God. They cannot control the future. But we choose to do it anyway. We choose to act that way anyway. So you are doing something that you know is wrong. And so you commit sin. This uh, leads to some really big questions that I, I want to throw your way. Probably won't answer any of them, um, <laughs> as I like to do. No, uh, can we let go? Can we let go of the illusion of control? Um, can we let go of the illusion of control? I remember I went to the Grand Canyon. Uh, see, it was almost that was ten years ago now, um, and and the Grand Canyon has fences along the along the rim for like a quarter of a mile, and then the fences disappear, <laughs> right? Um, and so you're like on these amazing cliffs, and all of a sudden the fence is gone, and you're like, how can I not go out there? You know, there's this. I can, I can walk out onto the, and you can kind of climb down onto these shelves and these different things. So I was with these four guys from college, and, uh, and we walked past the fence. The fence ends. We're walking along the path, and we just we're, we're college guys, and we're hyped up on adrenaline because we're all from Indiana, and uh, the Grand Canyon is just like mythical for someone who grows up in Indiana. And uh, <laughs> you half expect to see corn and such things. Um, but... My one friend, he kind of he comes along and he doesn't think at all about like the Grand Canyon being this gigantic pit that he could fall into. He just and there's snow on the ground. He just jumps. It was like a six foot ledge. He just jumps off the ledge onto this other platform and then just runs out onto the like little point out there, right? And then uh, and then I stood there and I was like, okay, I'm gonna plot my path, right? And I am 
looking like, because I can't not go. I'm looking at it. I'm like, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go this way. I'm gonna go that way, and and uh, and I go out. I go out there after I've kind of planned it. And then my other friend plans it, and then he realizes I just can't do it. I'm gonna fall to my death. And then my third, my fourth friend looks at this, and he's just like frozen with fear. Like he's he's all he is aware of is the the dropping off, right? So we go through this, and I, I learned this like really interesting lesson about our personalities. But we all go back to the nature center just after that. We find out that someone had fallen off of exactly where we went out, had fallen to their death like that week, right? Right in that spot. There's this illusion of control, right? I thought to myself, if I just plan my way, I'll be fine. And it gave me the courage to go out there, which I would – frankly do again but um well no i probably wouldn't not with kids if i didn't have kids i would still do it if i didn't have kids i would still probably do it uh but is there's this there's this illusion of control right i i looked at it and i literally thought i can control my experience with the grand canyon that's insane all right it's insane but i thought it because I had a really high view of my own ability to plan, I guess. But we do that all the time. We do it in all kinds of ways. So in our Christian walk, are we willing to let go of the illusion of control? Especially in relationships. Because we cannot control the other half of a relationship. We cannot do it. But we try to over and over and over again in all kinds of ways, especially in a marriage, right? So that instead of thinking to myself, what's the right thing to do? What's the healthy thing to do um, in an argument with my, in, with my wife? Instead, what I'll think is, how do I get her to do what I want her to do? Right? That's making it about control. That's having an illusion that if I just play the right formula, I can finally get her to do what it is that I really want her to do. Instead of asking myself, instead of letting go of it being about control and saying, uh, you know, what's the healthy thing for us? Another big question. Can we embrace God's activity when it messes with our plans? Can we embrace God's activity when we, it messes with our plans? So that God may just interrupt your life. God may just interrupt your life. I'm going, to, I'm going to tell a story about this in a, in a little while. Um, another one, can we embrace our own limits? Can you look in the mirror and say, I am a mist? My life is short. This is extraordinarily difficult for me to do. I want to be a savior. I have a savior complex. Right? Some of you may have the exact opposite. You have a, I'm broken and deficient complex. Mine's the other one. It's the I'm, I'm going to save the world, right? And I've noticed that time and age and children and marriage and being a pastor has a way of making you remember, I will not save the world, right? I won't. And that is, that is, I mean, that is literally painful for me to go through that process over the last seven years, looking in the mirror and admitting to myself, I will not save the world. That is not the role that a mist plays. 
the role that I can play is to embrace that activity of God in my life and be a, uh, a co-worker of God's, right? A cooperative agent of God's in the world. I can submit my own abilities and gifts to the grace of God and to his work. So finally, can we be open, open-hearted toward God's spirit? Can we, because I think the real reason I don't want to admit my limits, I don't want to say that I am, um, I'm a mist, because I'm worried that if I say that, then I'll give up what's good about life. I'm worried that if I say that, I'll give up what is good about life. Because it seems like all the messages in my life and in my story, all the messages are what's good is me winning. What's good is me succeeding. What's good is me acting like I don't have limits. I don't know, maybe that's not your struggle, but that's that seems to, to hit home with me. And so can I be open-hearted toward God and say to God, I trust that you're good? And then if I admit who I am before you, that you will do good things rather than taking the goodness of life away. Yeah, I remember um, I had this really powerful experience once, only one time. No, uh, <laughs> this particularly powerful experience in, in high school. I had, uh, so I was in this relationship with this girl that was really unhealthy, and I went to youth group, and somebody preached about Abraham sacrificing Isaac, or being willing to sacrifice Isaac, and I just felt with every ounce of my being that God was asking me to sacrifice that relationship. And I looked at God in whatever way you can look at God, and I said, no, (laughs) right? Not happening. And I didn't. I didn't. It literally was uh, two or three years, and then she broke up with me. And uh, But I, I could not be open-hearted. I thought, if God takes this thing away from me, everything will be bad. God, God just wants to take my, my one and only son, you know, like my precious son away from me, like, like with Abraham. He just wants to, this relationship is so precious to me. God just wants to take this because he's not good. Which, of course, I forgot the point of the story with Isaac is that God was never going to have him kill his son. God was indeed good. So can in you the, in this process, I think essential to it is the belief that God is good. That the, the goodness of life is not in acting like I don't have limits. It's not in trying to control things. It's not in my own um, exaltation. The goodness of life is actually found in humility. The goodness of life is actually found in humility. Right? The first step in AA is the admission that I have a problem and I can't control it, right? In a lot of ways, that's the first step of Christianity. I got a problem and I can't control it. And that humility, that humbling leads to restoration. Because when you humble yourself before God, you're humbling yourself before someone who... uh, will help you beat death. (laughs) You're entering into his resurrection, into his new life. 
You're humbling yourself before, before Jesus, who washed even the feet of Judas. This is a good God. Now, um, I want to I wanna just kind of, I'm not going to read this story, um, but I, I just want to tell you a couple of things about this story, kind of tell you the, the gist of it. Um, this is a fascinating story from um, Acts. So uh, Philip is heading in some direction, and, uh, and God, God tells Philip, go a different way, right? Just don't go the way you're going, go a different way. And Philip is like, okay. And uh, he, because he changes directions, he walks along and he meets this guy uh, who's an Ethiopian. And an Ethiopian is in, a, is in a chariot and he's trying to read the, uh, the text to the prophet Isaiah about um, this person being led like a sheep, silently like a sheep to the slaughter. And Philip says, what, you know, what are you doing? And, and uh, the guy says, well, this is what I'm doing. And Philip says, well, do you know who this is? book is about? Do you know who, who the, the author is talking about, who the prophet's talking about? And the, the Ethiopian says, no, I don't. Do you? Because if you do, come up in this chariot and talk to me about it. And so Phillips comes up in the chariot and tells them all, all about Jesus. All right? So I think Philip was not sinning when he left wherever he left and decided to go a certain direction. Right? That wasn't sin. He wakes up in the morning and he says, I'm going to go here. And he went there. And he starts out going there. But then in the middle of him making this decision and he's walked off in a certain direction, God says, go a different way. Right? So making plans in and of themselves is not sin. I think it's really important to kind of get in our heads. It's, it's the arrogance, right? That's why he ends this little passage talking about arrogance. It's the arrogance. If, if Philip stands up in the morning, he says, I'm going this way because I got it all life figured out. And I know if I go this way, I can make everything happen. That is sin. But if Philip wakes up in the morning, I don't know. Maybe he was on his way to get breakfast. Maybe he was like, hey, I walked by a guy that had eggs at the market yesterday. I'm going to go see if I can get myself one of them eggs. That's probably not what James is talking about, right? And along the way to his eggs... God says, Philip, go this other way. Now we're in, in the moment, right? The moment of decision where, where I wanted to look at God and say, no, I'm not giving up this relationship. No, I'm not going that way. Or Jonah says, not only am I not going that way, I'm going in the opposite way. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to find my way to Tarshish, which is the middle of nowhere, as far away from you as I can get, God. Then we're talking about some different stuff, right? But Philip doesn't do that. He's open-hearted. I would, I'm reading in, I'm reading a lot into this little scenario, but I think there's enough evidence to suggest that Philip's attitude is right with God. Oh, God's good. I'm limited. Whatever my other plan was is secondary to God intervening in my life, and so I'm going to be open-hearted. I'm going to go this other direction. So then a really, I think a really funny thing, I've always found it really funny. Maybe I will read the last, the last sentence, verse 40 of uh, Acts chapter 8. So he's done talking with him. Uh, when they came, let's see, 
Oh, yeah. And then he baptizes him. So when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away. (laughs) The eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself in Azotus. And as he was passing through the region, he proclaimed the good news to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Um, So in the morning, God says, go this way, and he goes that way. And then in the afternoon, God doesn't give him an option. He just snatches him away, and he finds himself someplace. Anybody had that happen? Um, Not me. Uh, A little bizarre. uh, And then he just goes about doing good work. Right? He goes about proclaiming the good news about Jesus in, in that village and in the surrounding area. Handles it pretty well. I would say that, that this story is the, the image of open-heartedness. This story is the image of what James is trying to get at. It's okay to wake up in the morning and say, I'm going to go get A's. Right? It's okay to wake up in the morning and say, I'm probably going to do this today. But if God intervenes, if God says, go this way, you go that way. Because I, I, really, um, I really believe, and I, I've said this before, and like this is not the same thing. Like Philip's story, I just want to, this is an aside, okay? Philip's story is not the same thing as uh, I'm deciding between buying a car and not buying a car, right? And I'm praying about buying the car, and I'm asking God, you know, should I buy the car? Should I not buy the car? And uh, and I don't really get much of an answer about whether to buy the car or not. Right? That's not the same. Because what happens is in that scenario, I've met a lot of Christians who feel like I got to know what God wants me to do. Does God want me to buy the car or not buy the car? See, God makes it clear to Philip. God says to Philip, go this way. Sometimes God doesn't say go this way. And in that case, use your brain. Use your heart, use your dedication to Jesus to make a decision and believe that you serve a gracious God that's not going to smite you. Okay? But if God does say, buy the stinking car, <laughs> then you buy the car, right? I don't know. Sorry. Um, and so most, most, translations of, most translations use the phrase Lord willing in this, in this passage talks about, um, right, so that in, instead of saying, I'm going to go here and do this or do that, it says, if the Lord wishes or Lord willing, we will live and do this or do that. I really see that phrase. I actually, I think if you're struggling with this, an excellent way to help yourself, an excellent way to help yourself is to try to change your language and to literally say, Lord willing, I'm going to go do this and I'm going to go do that. Like, I, I think that's a great practice. I've done it myself. Um, and that has a way, that kind of practice has a way of changing your heart. But I think that mostly this is about your heart towards God. Mostly this is about your heart towards God. So I want to tell you two stories. Um, my last few sermons have been short, right? So I can go a little longer today. No, no. Um, Lord willing, yeah, I think is about freedom and it's about trust. Right? So I trust that God is good, that I trust that when I offer myself before God, he's going to do good things, even when they seem dark, even when they seem dreary, even when they seem treacherous. I'm going to trust that God is good, that I'm going to trust that God is who Jesus 
was and who Jesus said God was. But I'm also going to believe that I have some freedom in the world, right? So that when I say Lord willing, I'm going to go to the city and I'm going to, I'm going to do business there. I am actually believing that I'm free to do that unless God tells me I'm not. Does that make sense? So that the Lord willing, the do as the Lord wishes, is not somehow now don't make any plans with life, right? Um, so I, I, I moved to Oregon in August of 2010. Abby and I moved to Oregon in August of 2010. And I moved having had God really shake my life up. I had left uh, the summer, at the beginning of the summer in like May, Abby and I left for Jamaica. And when I left for Jamaica, I was not totally sure that God was good. I knew I had faith in Jesus. I knew I liked Jesus. I knew I prayed to Jesus. I knew I knew that Jesus had done a whole lot of things in my life, but I wasn't quite sure that he was good. I was really kind of scared that he wasn't. And so in Jamaica, I had extraordinary things happen um, in my life, serving the people down there, serving alongside them, serving the, the mission teams that came. And I found myself coming back freshly infused with a deep faith in the goodness of Christ. Okay? So I go off to seminary. We're in, I'm in seminary, and, um, and I'm training and studying to be a professor of Christian history and theology. And uh, I, I was sort of running from the idea of being a pastor because I had not experienced that goodness of Christ within a church. Right? I've been in church all my life, and I had to like go and do something radically outside of the church. This mission thing was not congregational. And there I experienced the goodness of God. And so I had, I had a really weird relationship with this idea that, yes, there was some calling inside of me, but I wasn't so sure that I could serve the church, that I could be a pastor of a church. So anyway... Uh, make a long story short, because I know that's all. That's what you want me to do. Because um, <laughs> that's not the pastor impulse. Um, make a short story long. I think is really more pastoral. Uh, <clears throat> to make a long story short, I I find myself accidentally in the interview process to be the pastor at this church. All right, I had had a meeting with a Church of God pastor, and he sent my resume to Newburgh without my permission. And then I got a call from Nathan Chalet, who is the, the chair of the uh, pulpit committee, and I was on a phone interview with him, and I didn't even know if I wanted the job. Like, not just this job, like any pastor job. But I was like, well, I'm not going to be rude to this guy. I'll just answer his questions, you know? And then he calls me again the next day and says, hey, we want to, uh, like, that was great. We had a great conversation. We want you to come and, 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 be, and be interviewed for the position. And I was like, uh, this is not my plan. I'm going to be a professor. And uh, that's, that's what I want to do. I'm not so sure I trust the church. I'm not sure, so sure I want to be uh, you know, in things. And so I'm, I'm, I'm just I'm, I'm wrestling with God. And I say, I say to him, yeah, I'll, I'll come and do the, the interview. I was pretty honest with him that I wasn't so sure. And uh, I was reading this book for seminary because I, I specifically chose a seminary that would would engage my heart and not just my mind, that would engage my relationship with Jesus. So I was, I was reading this book called, 
called The Call by a guy named Oz Guinness. And I was reading in there, I was reading this, I read, was reading this story about this monk in like the year 1200 who became a monk. And he, there's this quote from him and he says, I knew that my whole life had been a preparation for this moment. Okay. I knew that my whole life had been a preparation for this very moment. And I read that and it was like the sentence jumped off of the page and the rest of the book was worthless. It hit me like a two by four in the face. And I was like, yes, I am called to this position. So by the time I actually came for the interview, I was a whole different person than when I had had the phone, phone interview. So that was an example of me being open-hearted towards God. Let me give you another example. Uh, <clears throat> at the exact same time as all this is happening, the exact same time as all this is happening, okay? My, um, uh, I got a call from that same mission organization that said, hey, we, we want you and Abby to lead a trip to Haiti. Okay, it'll be uh, over Christmas and it's two weeks long. And, you know, we're, we're, whereas you had to raise funds to go to Jamaica, like, we'll, we'll fund this completely. And, uh, oh, that sounds really cool. I was like, but I got a job because I was working at, at uh, the rescue mission and I was in the interview process here, right? Like, so I didn't have the job and I was 24 years old. So I was pretty sure that it would be good experience for me to go through the interview. But eventually somebody would say, this guy's too young and stupid to be do this job. Um, and so I was like, that's probably not going to happen. I'm probably not going to get the job. This is just kind of part of my, my walk with Jesus. And Abby was like, you idiot. Like, this is, this is our calling. We, we need to go. We need to be involved in this because the, uh, the earthquake in Haiti had just happened. We need to be involved. We need to go. We need to uh, be a part of this mission trip. And, you know, in a, in a relationship, the person who says no is the one who has the power, right? And I just kept saying no, like it's not, it's unwise for us to do it. So I we called and I said no, and uh, I had to quit my job the day before the uh, the mission trip would have left, and I started as pastor here the day after the mission trip would have ended. So I had exactly exactly a perfect window for us to go to Haiti. And, and to do that. And I, I said no. That was at the exact same time that I was saying yes to what God was calling me to do here. So I say all that because I think there's freedom. I do think there's freedom. I don't think I sinned by saying no necessarily to, uh, to going to Haiti. I made a mistake. <laughs> I'll say that. I made a big mistake. I should have trusted. I should have trusted. But I, 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 so at the same time I was saying yes, I was also saying no. And that's part of the Christian life. That is part of the Christian life. Right? So our hearts, our hearts, this is all about our hearts and offering our hearts to Jesus day in and day out over long periods of time and asking him, fashion my heart so that the way I view the future, the way I view the present, the way I view opportunities, the way I view people, the way I view life and success and who I am is all shaped after you. I want to end with um, 
I going back to that story about the girlfriend after she broke up with me, which is still I've said I've told you that story before. Um, it's such it makes me so embarrassed. But because uh, I yeah anyway after that I I was reading a book and I came this book talked about this passage. Psalm 84, and it says, For the Lord God is a sun and shield. He bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he does the Lord withhold from those who walk uprightly. Right? Jesus tells a similar story, right? He says, Who among you, if your, your kid asked for bread, you know, would give them stones? Right? God is good. When we admit to him, I am a mist and a vapor. I cannot see the future. I cannot control the future. I cannot control my relationships. I cannot control things. There is goodness in that. God brings goodness out of it. When you have an addiction and you lay that addiction at his feet and you say, I do not have control over my alcoholism. I do not have control over my, uh, my drug use. I do not have control over... Eating. I do not have control over this relationship or that. I do not have control over my anger. When you lower yourself and you say, I am a mist, I am a vapor, God does not slap you. He does not stand over you and say, you idiot. He lifts you up. Remember that this, all this stuff that we're talking about in James comes after he says, those who exalt themselves shall be humble, but those who humble themselves shall be exalted. There is great goodness in humbling ourselves before God. There is great goodness in being open-hearted to his activity in the world. There is great goodness in him and in life served at his pleasure. Let's pray. Jesus, you are good. My life, I... You've just been good in so many ways. Even my darkest, darkest valleys, I can look at them now and I can say and see how good you were. God, I, I pray that, that those of us who are in the midst of those valleys, that you would teach us to hold on to your goodness, to hold on to who you are, to keep looking at you, keep asking questions, keep talking to you, keep... Keep, the, keep keeping the lines of communication with you open, God. And Lord, I pray that we as a church would be a place where we are open-hearted to, to serendipitous things. Things that just seem out of the ordinary, but are extraordinary opportunities for us to live like you in the world. God, help us to be like Philip. Help us when we're, when we're going one direction and you say, hey, here's this other person that needs help. Help us to be the kind of disciples that's turned the ship around. And God, in our lives, fashion our hearts after you. Help each and every one of us to take the scary step of humbling ourselves before you. And God, I know that when we do that, you are a good and gracious Father who does not give stones, but who gives life. We praise you and we adore you and we love you and we thank you for who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.